0: Hello and welcome to Alpha Health and Wellness Radio. I am your host, Dr. Haley Schaff, where I'm here to empower you to become the alpha of your health. Hey, you guys, and welcome back to the show. So happy to have you here on Alpha Health and Wellness Radio. I'm really, really, really looking forward to having you guys listen to this interview that I did with the CEO of Belcampo, Anya Fernald. We dive into all things her journey. Um, you know how she's she's very into culinary arts and how she's very also into making those things be healthy as opposed to just being aesthetic or just being more in like a restaurant setting. We talk a lot about regenerative farms and how her farm, Belcampo is so different than other farms, um, more conventional farms and how conventional type meat that's well-raised is not only good for us, it's good for the planet. Um, better meat, better humans, um, better planet. It's just, it's an amazing discussion. And this farm is definitely a farm that I've been very, very happy to support. Um, I, we've been using Belcampo meat for quite a while now. One of their favorites is the bone marrow. That's one of like our favorite things it's just so decadent it's super rich so great and then i save the bones and then i'll make them for mare uh for bone broth i love their organ meats so i'll grind up a bunch of chicken liver or beef liver and then kind of add it in they've got really great steaks their meatballs are to die for their meatballs are great because Oh, they're just, they're so good. They're like very high quality ingredients and you can use them with sauce. You can just, I will literally just eat them as like a protein snack. They're so good. Um, I can't wait for you guys to hear our discussion today. Um, And if you do want to support this amazing regenerative farm doing amazing things, you can head to the link in bio uh, or the link in the show notes, www.belcampo.com slash Dr. Haley and use code Dr. Haley on your first purchase. And it'll save you money. Um, I, they are definitely a company that I am just, again, more than happy to support. So if you want to support them, head to belcampocom slash Dr. Haley and use code Dr. Haley at checkout to save some money. You guys will love their stuff. If you have questions on what what you should get or what my favorite products are, I'm more than happy to spill the beans because they're amazing. So without further ado, let's just get into today's episode. I know that you guys are absolutely going to love it. Okay, you guys, I have a great episode today. We have Anya Fernald with us, who is the co-founder and chair of Belcampo Farms, which is a regenerative farm out in California. Whenever you guys ask where I get my meat from, that's definitely one of the farms that I love to support. So Anya, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so excited to talk about all things nose to tail, regenerative farms, you know, and how the work that you guys are doing are so different than- and, and really, kind of paving the way not only for our increased nutrition and just better food for us, but also a better environment, better for animals. So, can you give us a little background on your story and how, how you got into this work?
1: Absolutely. I started the company in 2012. Is, is there an echo? No. Nope. Okay. okay, I'm hearing that Let me see what's going on. I'm sorry. Um, let's see. Let me just plug this microphone, sorry. No, it's okay. I'll put some headphones in to... Okay, that seems... I started Belcampo in 2012. And prior to that, I had had a real personal health shift around eating, I'd say, a traditional holistic diet. I had moved to Europe in my early 20s and worked as a cheesemaker. And then later I ran basically a microfinance fund for small-scale food enterprises, which involved working with a lot of small-scale farmers. All of that time I was basically living in, in traditional rural communities where I ate like a mostly animal-based traditional diet, Uh, a lot of salami and a lot of cheese, olive oil. Um, And my health improved radically compared to my baseline of being an American adolescent. And, um, When I came back to the US in after eight years or seven seven years abroad in total, I um, was extremely interested in what had shifted because I immediately kind of went back to my old ways and immediately had some major health changes. And keep in mind that the whole paradigm of diet was very different at the time. The paradigm of the diet was like eat low fat, eat, um, you know, a lot of highly processed kind of healthy foods with big air quotes. Yeah. Big air quotes. (laughs) Right. Like that was the mentality. And I was eating like slabs of cheese and piles of raw meat and I was eating a very different diet, but I was thriving on that. So I was kind of intrigued around that. I wasn't considering myself at the time, like a very wellness oriented person. And now I would definitely describe myself as that I was doing it intuitively, not intentionally. Though, so, so you know, I, I came back to the U.S. I started a different business since I've, I've sold it since then, and I basically was a serial entrepreneur in the food space for a couple of years. Um, did some consulting and was looking for a bigger project. And Belcampo was the brainchild of myself and my co-founder. And I initially worked with my co-founder as his consultant. Awesome. And so I consulted and came up with a concept for Belcampo, developed the idea um, pitched it to him and, um, we built the business, uh, off of an initial core of land that he owned in Northern California that we've since expanded massively with the acquisition of additional land.
0: That's so awesome. So you, you, what brought you to Europe in the first place to even, to even kind of experiment with their culture and, 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 I think that that's so funny that they just, I wonder if they eat like that intuitively, you know, knowing that that just is what feels good to them, or if that's just how they have been for hundreds and thousands of years.
1: Yeah. I went to Europe. Now I grew up with a lot of travel. So I I was pretty, I lived in London for a couple of years growing up. I was born in Germany, although I'm not German. My parents lived there for a decade. So like I'd been fairly comfortable with moving around a lot. Um, but I, I was interested in, um, in food. I worked as a cook and I really didn't like being a cook and I didn't like the restaurant world. Like I didn't like the vibe in the kitchen. I didn't see women doing very well there. And I saw that people were also like, I remember my first boss when I worked in the restaurant kitchen was it came to work. I worked starting at 2am doing prep. It was like a brunch place. And, um, I would start at 2 a.m. and then my boss would get there at 6 a.m. and he would drink a can of Coke and smoke a Marble Red. And I was like, oh my God, like this is totally not my scene. No. Like I wasn't like, as wellness aligned as I am now, but I was definitely like, okay, this is not, I'm not going to be that dude. And a lot of people that I saw in that world struggled with alcohol, um, seemed like nobody slept. Um, there was lots of, you know, it, it's sort of like a hedonistic culture in a lot of ways that didn't really vibe for me. And I, and also like a kind of self-abnegating, like a lot of like hiding in that world. I found, this is my experience, my experience.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And that just didn't really sit for me. And I looked at food journalism, which also didn't sit for me at the time. It was very much oriented around like gourmet food and fancy food. And the theme for me is like, I'm interested in food, but I'm interested in food. That's like naturally healthy, not very interested in like restaurants and fancy dining. Um, so I was looking kind of noodling around that and I started to bake and I worked as a professional baker and I, you know, I worked, um, I was very interested in like traditional American baking. I actually wrote my thesis in college about sourdough bread and in, in America, in California history. And then I, I was just like learning a lot about traditional breads. And, um, I started to make buttermilk, um, to make traditional American breads, oh, wow! You use whey and you use buttermilk in traditional American breads. So I was started making cheese to make way to use in biscuits. And so I was making cheese and it was like, this is really fun. And I was making it, um, in college, my college roommate still teases me about, I would have like bags of cheesecloth hanging from the, you know, the rod in your closet with your clothes on it, like the c- curtain rod or the closet rod. I would have like little bags of cheesecloth hanging. Now this is like in the late nineties. So it was like really not cool to be that into food. Right. Um, and I didn't go to an agricultural school. Um, I went to a liberal arts college. So I was making all this cheese and having fun with it. And I got a fellowship called the Watson Fellowship, which allows you to pursue. If you have like a demonstrated interest in something that's you can't really pursue in a traditional academic channel, these guys will give you a little money to spend a year studying that. It was founded by the guy who founded IBM. And he had spent a year after college kind of putzing around with open mind and who he found it very formative in his life. So he lets people do this with his legacy funds. So he, there that foundation I applied for and got that fellowship, moved to Wales and became a cheesemaker. So cool. And I'd like this 98, 99. Um, And then I traveled throughout Europe and Northern Africa. I was in Morocco, Tunisia. Um, I spent a lot of time in Switzerland, France, of course, um, a lot of time in Italy and Greece. Um, and I was, you know, my mind was opened, um, to just a very different way of living. I also had very little money. I, um, I only traveled around on a bicycle, like a folding bicycle and the train. And I would get up like at four in the morning and like bike out to some dairy and then watch them make cheese and then eat lunch with them. And it was, and it was like, keep in mind, there was no cell phones. I left for that year with no cell phone, no computer like a literally a camera with film in it wow. and a diary, like a journal. So it was like a lot of personal growth. And by the end of that year, I'd gotten a couple job offers from people who were, you know, looking to expand. And I was, you know, I spoke a little Italian, uh, a little French by the end of that year. And I um, was, was looking to, to do something where I could stay there, but I didn't, I knew I wasn't like cut out to be a straight up cheesemaker. Don't have the patience for that. Um, and I, I, I was offered a couple of different jobs. One of them was interesting to me, mostly because of where it was, and it was in really rural Sicily. Oh, cool. And so I moved to Sicily. I got a visa and I moved there in 1999. Sorry, in 2000. Yeah. And then I ended up in Sicily running a basically cooperative of small scale cheesemakers. And from there, I be- moved to Northern Italy, eventually became the director of a microfinance fund funded by the region of Tuscany. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was like, it was a neat little kind of start in my trajectory, but it's like, it doesn't, I feel like in, you know, your jobs and stuff, it's, it's always important where you are, not what you're doing, right. Especially early in life, right. It doesn't really matter if you learned a specific thing, um, like in the actual work, like I was doing business planning, I was doing marketing planning, I'm doing stuff then that I still do now. Mm -hmm. Right. It was also in that time in my life, it was just like that I every weekend I was out with farmers. I was making cheese. I was foraging for food. I learned how to cook over the open fire. Like it was that experience, like going to the, you know, like on a lunch break when I worked in Sicily, we'd drive down to the ocean and like get sea urchins, light a fire on the beach, cook pasta and mix it with the sea. It was like on a lunch, they had long lunch breaks in Sicily. Wow. And then you until very late. Like you start the day at eight and then you work until like, 11 a.m. and then you stop until five and then you work from five until nine again that's weird so you have these long breaks and so we do these big adventures and like gather stuff it was incredible so like that whole time of my life and i was also just in really vibrant health um and that was different you know like in all these little things that like as a young woman plagued me of just like dry skin and split ends Mm and you know utis and yeast infections and bad breath and cavities and like everything, my body odor changed. And I was like, wow, this is just really different. Like all this stuff that I thought was just me is not me. And that's my diet. Um, and I kind of didn't put that until later until, and also just like weight maintenance became way easier. People say that they go
0: to Europe and they say they eat all this cheese and pasta and they don't gain any weight.
1: Yeah. And it's like, I'm walking and I'm like, it's not really about the walking, you know, like it's really about the quality of the foods being inflammatory. So I, I really like, I found this massive difference in my health and I was like, I don't really want to leave. Like I'm doing great, you know? And then it was also nice to, to just like learn a way of eating where really good food. Like I remember trying, you know, a eating very seasonally, which I think is a big part of health. And, um, but things like, you know, in Sicily, you get like the blood oranges in the peak of season, which is, you know, the, the, the fall and winter time. And then they'd be dressed with like the new harvest olive oil, which is really high and all those, phenols, you know, super bitter. And then like chili flake and salt on it. And that was like a really elevated dish. But like you, if you read that dish in the recipe book and you made it, you'd be like, this is gross. Because if you were to take just like a supermarket orange and put, you know, most olive oil in the U.S. is adulterated. It's actually your very refined palm oil with a little bit of olive oil in it for flavoring it does not taste good. Chili flakes got lots of preservatives and it's like these very elevated dishes. So kind of my takeaway was like, oh, I like elevated food when the elevation is about quality and hyper clean, really delicious ingredients. That's my jam. Mm -hmm. And that remains my jam. I'm not into, and I've been a judge on Iron Chef for a decade. I have been to most of the three-star Michelin restaurants. I have a ton of respect for what those people do and things, but I'll just say it's absolutely nothing that I'm interested in at all of like a super produced cooked amazing thing you know or like a dish that looks like a meringue but is actually a i don't know a sandwich like all this really elevated cuisine where you're like it's an olive no it's actually a meringue and you're like okay who cares like that to me is just not interesting and then a lot of those foods are actually also hyper processed Mm -hmm. you know it's like lots of stabilizers lots of gums and so it's just and i think now that elevated cuisine and hope cuisine is like kind of coming into line more around ingredients and origin but it's been a lot of like molecular stuff, which is just like all hyper-processed. It's got a lot of junk in it. So I really didn't feel like between like accessible American food, which is made out of garbage and has a lot of sugar and and junk in it. And then elevated American food, which is just like a different version of processed food. I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. And I think now I do. And I felt more of a home in like wellness and health than I have really in culinary as a result.
0: Yeah. And so did you, did you feel like your wellness was kind of sparked overseas where you didn't even feel like that wasn't even your primary goal. Like you, you were, you kind of experienced it because of how much better you felt. And then when you moved back here, you're like, oh, wow, we are really lacking. in, in so many of these areas,
1: yeah. and That's kind of a bridge that I think is important to think about now, which is like, there's a way to connect to wellness through like sensuality and joy. That's how I did. Right. And it's, and I see a lot of this, like eating, you know, a lot of meals that come out of a blender, okay, it has a place. Um, You know, I get it. You might be incredibly busy, but like, I just encourage people to find things that like you can chew and that taste really good. And like that have a component of smell, you know, that have a component of emotionality. That's not different from emotional eating, but like an emotionality of remembrance or an emotionality of celebration. Like these aspects are parts of wellness that I think need to be celebrated as well. You know, it's like this idea that like wellness is like supplements and smoothies, not true. Um and it's like, and then we do a lot of a lot of yoga. And I'm thinking, you know, if you were to cook and really take the time to smell and enjoy and celebrate and dance and laugh while you're cooking, you might need a little less yoga and breath work time because you can actually do that. Like I do breath work while I cook. Yeah. like you know, it's really difficult to get good crusts and browning on things if you move stuff around the pan all the time, something I see all the time with American cooks is like this constant pushing things around the pan. And then it's like, why do my potatoes never get brown? Or why is my, why is my burger never get a crust, but it's overdone. It's like, cause you're just pushing it around the pan all the time. Like leave it on the pan count, like inhale and count slowly to 20, hold your breath and let out, like you can do things like that. You know, it's like, and you're smelling it and you're enjoying it. And I'm not saying like overproduce it, but like, there's ways to carve like reflection and beauty out of every experience and cooking can be one of those things.
0: Wow. I never thought about it like that.
1: Well, it's a way to reclaim it. You know, I feel like now we talk about like sensuality and enjoyment of food. It's like ranch dressing on (laughs) sugary wings. And it's like, that's like, that's enjoyment. Like that's like, Oh, I'm indulging. Here's what I'm doing. Oh, I'm being healthy. I'm eating the smoothie. Um, and it's like, no, another way to think about it is you could have those together where like the whole experience of like, you smell, you, you know, you buy the steak, it smells really good, raw, you sear it or you light a fire. And it's like, really, everybody knows lighting a fire is like a major, awesome thing, <laughs> right? Like for your whole emotional and cortisol and everything and builds a sense of connectedness with people. So it's like, you light a fire, you cook it, you smell it, you know, you make a chimichurri sauce with fresh parsley that you sourced at the market and you talk to a farmer about it and you buy it and it tastes delicious. And you make a soup out of the scraps. Like that's a really cool wellness experience as well. Yeah. And it allows you to bring different elements of like sensuality and being truly present into lots of different elements of your experience.
0: Wow. I love that. I'm going to practice that, you know, add in some deep breathing when I'm, you know, making whatever I'm making. I absolutely love that. Cause you know, I think that so many people, like you had mentioned, we always, we want things out of a pill or a smoothie or a blender. Or we want something quick, but so much joy, for me, like one, be just being thankful for the food that I have comes from prepping it and cooking it and like trying out all these different flavors. And especially because, you know, I do try to eat seasonally and we do try to support regenerative farms and stuff like yours and others who are doing that good work. And for me, I've gotten so much joy out of knowing I know exactly where my food's coming from and it has so much meaning, but like that, that I think I need to add in the breath work to really create that whole holistic picture. But I love that.
1: think about this because I make my own mayonnaise and I make aioli and I, I like to eat a lot of fat. Um, so Same. I like make a, you know like chicken and then make an aioli and dip it. And I also get really good olive oil. I think good olive oil is clutch mm-hmm. for health and dis- enjoyment. And so I, I started to notice that when I was stressed out, my man, you know, you make mayonnaise, you emulsify, right? So it's a question you have to really carefully drop olive oil into the egg yolks and whip it you know you can do it in a blender too but it's it takes the patience to actually drop it in slowly and i would notice that if i was stressed out i never could make the mayonnaise and then that's something i hear a lot It's was like oh yeah i tried making mayonnaise and it's like i just never worked i can't get it right how do you get it right and i noticed that i would like inevitably nail it if i was calm and happily and inevitably if i came at it with energy of stress it wouldn't work. And it's like, wow, this is like, and I initially was like, oh, the mayonnaise is like picking up my vibe. And it's like, no, you're (laughs) actually not doing things with an appropriate level of focus. And anything where we can bring practice and focus to a discipline is helpful,
0: right? I mean,
1: that's doing like jujitsu, or that's why we like doing yoga or anything that we do, right? I mean, hiking, anything that we do and we get better at, we bring discipline and focus to it. And we don't, it's not fun to just like, you know, your first lesson at doing something is never fun, right. right? Like you might get a sense of what's ahead, but the joy comes through discipline, focus, and then the rewards associated with getting better, right? So it's like, if you can bring that same energy to cooking, it can be a lot more, a lot more in your life, you know, yeah. and that ritual. And I'm not saying, I'm not like an ode to like domesticity and, you know, like, probably two or three days a week, I'll cook, like really cook and make a really nice meal. And the rest of the time, it's like everybody, it's like, we're doing something pretty casual, right? Yeah. We're throwing it together, like, that's fine. But I'm just saying that the, these moments like this concept around wellness, that's why I actually like seeing people doing meal prep and stuff, because like this like conscious caretaking through the food that you make for yourself is, I think, really um, a way to bring intention and presence to life that has a lot of benefits. And I encourage people to really consider carefully whether or not you really need a shake you really need the bar or whether you might have an opportunity for meal making and for a more thoughtful consumption
0: Oh wow I love that that's awesome. I, I think that a lot of people we could definitely consider that and so much like you said intention and that's I think a huge part of wellness. Um, what what sparked your interest in starting a farm but not just a farm? A regenerative farm.
1: So I, you know, I'd worked in farming throughout my career and my experience had all been in regenerative farms. Oh, it had so, been. So even
0: in Europe, it was, it was like, that? Yeah, oh, okay.
1: I only work with small scale ag and in Europe, there's all like, these are all multi-generational farms. So they're regenerative because they're like, my kids are inheriting this and they're going to farm this land.
0: That's awesome.
1: Okay. So it's a multi-generational approach to farming there and it's all inherently regenerative, not not as much certified organic, like definitely different kind of cultural moors around that, but broadly you're not going to leave the land devastated for your kids. Yeah. Right. And so there's a, that approach and in my experience coming at it from a culinary perspective was that this curated, careful approach to agriculture makes better tasting food. Basta. I mean, that's it. It's like, it just makes things taste better. And it typically, After years of observation, I'd say it has to do with slow growing, right? So, not pushing crops to the max on the speed of growth and micronutrient dense soil. Now, micronutrient dense soil comes from a lot of carbon in the soil. Carbon in the soil feeds micronutrients and feeds rhizomes. And then, by you know, there's a virtuous cycle right there. So, what we have when we have carbon dense soils, we have a lot more micro root systems. We have a lot greater density of carbon and we have greater productivity and greater nutritional quality of everything that's grown off that soil.
0: That's amazing. And that's, I feel like something being so lost is because I I drive, there's a lot of farm here and you drive by these monocrop farms. I mean, in the dirt, it looks like sand, like it just, it doesn't look like it can hold, but then you look at soil, you know, that's treated very well and it's dark, and it's healthy and it just has a totally different look to it. And then when you think about it, just logistically, okay, if I want, if I'm eating an animal and a cow or chicken or whatever, and they're eating things that look like it's absolute garbage sand, or if they're eating lush green grass grown on a pasture that from this amazing soil, like what it's, it almost seems like a no brainer where which is going to be better to eat. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, Absolutely, and that deep dark color comes mostly from water. And that water is in the regenerative soil because that soil has greater organic matter. So organic matter holds water, and then the water, in turn, contributes to the soil nutrient. Because so, so that
0: soil will hold more water than like than the other soil. It just it, it, that's why there's runoff, and the you just feel like it's constantly always dry.
1: Yeah. So if you notice too, if you read like in the Midwest, there's these flash floods on big farms, Mm -hmm. right? That's like a big problem right now. It's because Roundup, which is the most common agricultural company chemical today, which is glyphosate, right? The big GM, the the chemical that's used on genetically modified crops, that chemical doesn't just kill above ground, non-welcome plants, right? It's an herbicide. It also kills the entire micro biome underground yeah so the way genetically modified crops works is they're engineered to not suffer when sprayed with this very very potent chemical okay so that very very potent chemical is what those crops are engineered to be resistant to the thing is that that's above and below ground so that kills all the weeds right which limits competition for resources in the in the soil and then under the ground The roots of those GMO crops are also resistant to that chemical, right? So they thrive, but then all the other roots die. So all of the, and all the micro fungi, micro rhizomes and all the other stuff that happens downstairs is all dead. And then the next year you lose like a foot of topsoil. Oh my gosh. Because then you harvest those crops, right? And you say bye. And then the roots that were under those crops die off, which happens, but then there's nothing else there. So it rains and everything slides away. Wow. That's the issue with, I mean, this is when, you know, the start of the genetically modified crop, I was part of this world, like in the work that I was doing back in a, really when GMOs launched, everyone was like, oh, it's Franken food. And we're all going to get sick because there's salmon genes in the corn. It's like, no, that's not actually why we're getting sick. We're getting sick because of the nature of the chemicals that these are being engineered to resist and the potency with which these chemicals can be applied.
0: That makes total sense though. And if you, if you also think about it kind of from, I think of, okay, if it's killing all of these, these root structures, and it's it's killing these plants in the soil, I mean, what's it doing to the environment around it? What's it doing to the insects who inhabit that area, which obviously I know that we don't people spray the stuff because they don't want insects, but you know, insects are a huge part of the environment and then, you know, the, the, animals that eat the insects like i think that it kind of goes a little bit further down the food chain than people think
1: yeah and in the in the role of glyphosate itself that's an herbicide so it's less um they, they the things that are true pesticides are really challenging because the way that those work the way that they kill pests is that they disrupt their fertility right so they're endocrine disrupting chemicals and if you look at the fertility issues that we struggle with in the US, I see a really strong through line where like the things that we, so there's different classes of chemicals, but then obviously there's lots of pesticides that are sprayed as well. So in the case of glyphosate, that's an herbicide, it's used in a widespread way, but then there's also lots of pesticides that are used on things like tree crops and berries and you know highly susceptible crops, right? And the problem is the way that those things work is that they disrupt how animals reproduce. Um, and, and this is like atrazine, the most common chemical in American agriculture, banned in Europe. And it's been shown to cause, um, you know, gender switching in frogs that are exposed to it. So that female frogs become male or vice versa, I forget which ones, but it's like, there's, there's very significant endocrine impacts, and this is all about reproduction. I mean, these are, these are chemicals that they kill bugs in many ways. And one of them is by interrupting their reproductive system. there's just a lot of, re- we don't, we're not like, you know, we're not like that genetically distinct <laughs> from these animals. No. Too. So, you just be like, oh yeah, spray this thing that totally messes up their fertility. And then we're all scratching our heads that like, why, why is there so much like, why are all these women in their late twenties freezing their eggs? Cause all their girlfriends can't get pregnant in their thirties. It's like, well, guys, look at this. I mean, this is where, and I'd say just like to make this tactical and practical for your audience. Um, I think about it as, you know that's the with organics you know i'd say i we farm organically um all of our meats are are either currently organic or will soon be all organic we've been transitioning to 100 percent organic for various reasons and we do it really for the good of the planet but if you eat an organic chicken or a conventional chicken you're not gonna have a different chemical profile in that there's reasons you should do it, but you should be more concerned about like pastured in your chicken or that the chickens live outdoors. For your health, that's much more important than if it's organic. Oh, okay. It's different with blueberry though yeah. or a strawberry. Um, and it's different with a papaya and I'll explain why. So any anything that you're eating that has a soft, thin skin, you should absolutely make sure it's organic. I'm talking about green beans, blueberries, tomatoes, right? anything like that, because any, A, that soft, thin skins are as appealing to insects as they are to us. It's a lot easier to get at what's inside, right? And there's no way to take that off before you eat it. And newsflash is that nothing, everyone's like, oh my God, there's glyphosate in all the wheat in America. And I'm like, do you see anybody washing the wheat after they harvest it? No way. Like we don't wash wheat after we harvest it. We're, we're deathly afraid of it getting wet. Forget washing it, you know, like so there's no process where the chemicals are taken off, right? Apart from like rainfall, I guess, right? And that timing too, isn't going to coincide with it being your harvest. So there's in general with, with looking for organics, anything that's like thin skinned, always get it organic. Anything that's thicker skinned or been processed by an animal, organic is better, but not as necessary, right? So in a pinch, if you're going to eat something non-organic, like an avocado or a mango, um, or a banana, like the actual inside of that is not going to be a vector for the chemicals. Although you should be really careful about your hands when you're touching. Okay. And when you're peeling it and make sure you're washing your hands carefully and that you're not letting the skin that you take off that come in contact with the interior. Right. Um, but then if you're, if you're looking to really avoid like endocrine disrupting chemicals in your diet, definitely choose organic. That's very interesting. I guess I never realized that about the chickens, I guess I, or, you know, how you
0: had mentioned that it's more the the thin skin, I guess I just do it intuitively. Cause I just hope that they're eating a little bit more, more natural, but like you said, the pasture raised makes sense because at least they're living a little bit more of a natural lifestyle as opposed to, you know, conventional.
1: It doesn't actually mean anything about animal husbandry or humane handling. Organic has to do with the lack of nitrogen based fertilizers in the production of their feed and the lack of, you know, pesticides being used to produce their feed. Okay. Right. So there are some very minimal ways that organic is going to impact, like in our chicken operation, like we can't use bleach when we clean out the laying hens and like there's some things, yeah, there's some chemicals that you're not using in organic, but de minimis, Mm -hmm. right. When you're looking for chicken pastured, is the word that you should be looking for free range doesn't matter at all. It's meaningless. Cage-free doesn't matter at all. It's meaningless. Organic is a good for the world, yeah. but doesn't a meaningful difference in your health.
0: Even if right? it's um, so, well, the, the So I, I guess I don't remember where I read this, but does it matter? Like if they're, if you're eating like a fattier cut of me in terms of it's organic or not, because if they store toxins in their fat tissue, or does that not matter as much?
1: Well, this is a slippery one. The word toxins is a little bit of a trigger for me because it's such a catch-all and it's not very well documented, you know? So I've gotten our meat tested up the wazoo and yeah, the fat, I mean, the fattier cuts, omega three to six ratio is massively important. And talk about toxicity. I mean, out of whack three to six ratio is the worst thing for your health, right? One of the worst things for your health. So okay, you know, the optimal I think is one-to-one and it's up to -to one-to-four is acceptable. And in America, we get one-to-30 of omega-3, right? So that's a toxic thing. This idea, and and I do understand that, like, that, you know, for eating organ meats and bone marrow and things like that, yeah, it's better to avoid confinement animals. But I'd say for your health, it's just better to avoid confinement animals, period, right? Just period. There's just so many ways where they're worse for your health. The question of like, do they have toxins in them or do they have BPAs or heavy metals? I would say it's a little bit of a red herring um, because it's like they may, but animals' bodies are incredible. Think about what a mother can go through in life and, and the fetus is perfect and healthy, right? Like a mother can be, you know, nutritionally deprived and her child will have it. Like our bodies are amazing in what they can filter and produce. And that I give us an extreme example, not really relevant to it, but our ability to filter through our body and protect things. And, you know, people say liver, you shouldn't, eat. it's like, yeah, liver is a filtration device. It doesn't store all the toxins. It helps you pee and poo out the toxins. Right. That's what it does. So it's like that the liver from a confinement animal is going to have more toxins. Like that doesn't really foot for me in science, but that in general confinement animals are going to have way more stress, and way more toxicity, hundred percent foot for me. Okay. Okay. That, that's a good way to think about it. I like that. Mass fed and finished and pastured is absolutely the most important for your, for what you're talking about, right? Which is like the health and vigor of the, of the meat that you're eating. And then if they're in a confinement situation, just or if they're in confinement and they're eating, you know, feedlot ration, they can be fed plastic shavings as a, as an additive for fiber because they get so constipated because they, you know, cows evolved eating bulky piles of food with tons of fiber in it and we feed them nutrient dense seeds with very little fiber when they're in confinement mm-hmm. so when they're in confinement they have to be given supplementation to help them poop and not get deep, really constipated so they're given sawdust and plastic shavings um to help them not get as sick if you're eating plastic shavings you're getting bpas yeah duh you know yeah where are those bpas i mean probably a lot of them get peed out because those animals have amazing filtration systems and they regulate toxicity and, you know, great. And they also eat, you know, they feed them candy, right? They feed them candy in like damage, you know, out of like um, they've been shown. This is something you can Google like Skittles that were past their sell by date or fracture, like, but literally candy bars in their wrappers get fed to cows. So are there BPAs in those plastic wrappings? Is there lead in those bags? I mean, I don't know things to me, if I, if I have to take a guess, I'm going to assume that the government's not regulating the right things, you know, like, so I'm going to assume that probably there's not great stuff in there, but I also know that cows are miraculous animals and, and we can, we have an incredible capacity to filter in our bodies. Right. So there's a, it's kind of a, it's a, I'd say you're more likely to get some of that, but the reason to eat grass fed and finished and free range or pasture beef, pork poultry, it's all about the, the, I wouldn't make any division like for this cut, it's more important or that cut. It's like in general, it's, it's so proven to be different impact on your health. It's absolutely the right choice.
0: Yeah, I agree. I just, I feel, I feel better about doing it. And plus I feel like one, it's, it's good for the animal, right? Like I think that a lot of people who are, you know, anti-meat and whatnot, that's so against, they're seeing these feedlots and these conventional raised farms and where, you know, when there's a lot of farms who do, do the right thing like you do. And when the animals are living the proper way and you know, they're living a great life. Like that's, that's a totally different dis- distinction for me. And that makes me feel better about the choice that I'm making.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, um, so can you just uh, explain a little bit about, you know, the how, regenerative grazing and how, you know, how, well, how, you know, are your cows outside all year long? Um, because you're in California, you guys don't get snow up there, do you?
1: We get a little bit of snow, but yeah, our cows have no internal structures. Like there's no inside.
0: That's amazing. For
1: the um, for the pigs, there's little huts that they can go into, especially since there's a lot of babies, right? The pigs are always raised, but there's a lot of mixed intergenerational stuff. So like the little baby ones are with, or they're huddled together in a hut um the chickens have a covered area with without sides that they can go into that's mostly about predation from hawks and things right yeah and um and nighttime um and then there's there's low electric fences around them in general we have just like we mobile low electric fences um and then lamb are just like the cows. so yeah there's I'd say that's the unifying, it's not a characteristic necessarily of regenerative, but the unifying characteristic for Belcampo is everything outdoors as much as humanely possible.
0: That's awesome. And all the grass and the food that they're mainly eating, do you guys, do you do a lot of that? Like, do you grow a lot of the grass or a lot of the feed for these? For types? our
1: ruminants, for cows yeah. and, um, and lambs, which are a ruminant species, 100%. Um, for our pork and poultry, we buy in grain okay okay because we don't we do produce some barley and harvest it and feed it to them but we don't have enough capacity to do that and we're not in an area of california with enough water to grow grain on the scale that we would need
0: yeah oh, um, and these
1: things too it's like to get to regen you know regenerative the regenerative means agriculture that's in line with long-term soil fertility so that conventional agriculture you're planting crops you're harvesting them primarily by cutting the soil right? and you're, you're tilling, replanting, harvesting, adding chemical fertilizers, tilling, replanting, harvesting. Regenerative is typically no tilling. So no breaking of the soil, no regular replanting. Although we do something called no-till drilling, which means that you go over the land and you pop seeds into the land, um, and intersperse them. And then, um, there's also, you know, a focus on building deep perennial root systems distribute carbon in the soil okay so these are like basically regenerative agriculture means focusing on perennial crops that can take carbon from the atmosphere and put it down into the soil and then by doing that it increases the microbiome which then also increases the fertility of the soil and increases the overall health and and vitality of the ecosystem
0: that's awesome yeah and it, if it makes sense it if you think about it, that's that is sustainable. That's like the definition of sustainable. And I think the coolest part about it is when you when you hear about that, you you can't you you see how it's not only good for the animals that it's serving, but it's also good for our environment, right? It's 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 helping to protect the land instead of just continuously create horrible soil that creates no nutrition. And it's just kind of like this negative feedback in the conventional sense, whereas, you know, I wish that there were more farms that were doing it the way that you guys are. And so, um, you know, what do you, do you think that this is the trend that people are wanting to, do you feel like this is the only sustainable way that we can continue to do what we're going to do in terms of meat and animals in a sustainable way?
1: I think that looking at long-term soil fertility is the key metric against animal, against which animal agriculture and all agriculture should be measured. Right. Because if you don't you just have to keep on planning on looking for more land and or adding a lot of nitrogen-based fertilizers to existing land um so yeah i mean it's haley it's kind of like you're in the health space and if you look at it like if you had somebody you're working with who's keeps on getting sick and it's like i took ciprofloxin i did another cycle ciprofloxin i gotta do another cycle of amoxicillin i got and you're like okay how about you just get your base health back to where it should be. And then we can get off of this treadmill, right? That's the advice you'd give to somebody who's like, yeah, I've been on four cycles of heavy antibiotics in the past year. And that's exactly the analogy with regenerative versus confinement. I mean, agriculture, right. And, and extractive agriculture. It's like, you're like lurching from one crisis to the next. Um, but with very high productivity, you're running really hard and you're constantly medicating with different things as opposed to lower productivity, slower growth, but no catastrophes. Okay, you guys, so I am
0: so sorry, but the last nine minutes of our podcast, for some reason, got cut off from recording. We were talking all about regenerative farm, and we were talking about how doing it the sustainable way, how, you know, more how her farm is doing it is, is really doing right things, and so I am so, so sorry about that nine minutes. I don't know what happened, but it got cut off, and it did not get saved, and I cannot retrieve it. So I do apologize so much for that, but I really do hope that you guys learned a lot from this podcast episode. I hope that you guys will check her out. So you can check her out um, on her Instagram at Anya Fernald. You can check out her company at Belcampo. Um, You can check her company out. If you go to belcampo.com, you can do belcampo.com slash Dr. Haley and use code Dr. Haley for a discount um, because obviously that part of our interview got cut off where you can find her she's great. She posts a ton of awesome recipes and stuff on her stories. So she'll, she shares a lot how she uses these things in conjunction with seasonal vegetables and really makes a lot of really awesome, yummy recipes from scratch. So I'm definitely learning a lot from her. Um, so you guys should definitely check out her Instagram, bellcampo's Instagram. You should go support bellcampo. Definitely try their meatballs. They are so freaking good. Um, you know, I, it definitely worries me to know that you know, in 50 to 100 years, we might not have high quality soil left. And it definitely worries me that people are thinking that lab created meats is the way out of it when it's, it's not, it's, it's hot. we need to be doing a better job for our soil, for the animals, for the planet. Um, and, you know, companies like this do. And I'm a really big fan of voting with your dollar and, you know, putting your money in what you believe. And this is definitely something that I believe in. Um, I believe that they're definitely doing the right thing. They are actually multiple thing. They show that the methane is so much significantly less than things like in the Beyond Beef Burger and things like that. And I really do think that regenerative and these small farms are our, our, ways, our country's way back to health. So, um, you know, if you can't support someone like Belcampo or White Oak Pasture or any of these, you know, bigger Named, I guess, regenerative farms, you know, support a local farmer near you who's, who's doing good things. And, you know, I really save a lot of money going to local farmers markets and buying local, um, doing farm stands and stuff. You know, I save a ton of money that way. Uh, so that's always an option. You know, I know that it's definitely more expensive up front if you were to go in on like a fourth or a quarter or a fourth is a quarter. A fourth or like a half of a cow, Um, you know. But if you went in and you split it with someone, it's a it's a bigger cost up front. But when you boil it down per serving, it actually ends up being much less expensive than constantly buying meat in the store. So because you cut out the metal man, you buy right from the source. It's obviously more because you spend a few hundred dollars getting the meat, but then you don't have to get it. It's all in your freezer, and you use what you need. Um, So, you know, I won't, I won't continually rambling on this, but it's definitely something I'm really, really, really passionate about. Definitely check out the book, Sacred Cow. It's an awesome book. I just started reading it and I'm probably already more than halfway through. It's really, really empowering talking about how better meat for it really creates better humans and a better planet and how we can do that. How, how high quality meat is so incredibly nutrient dense and Honestly, they really raise some re- really great and interesting points. They give a lot of data. They talk about how a lot of these um, epidemiology studies or observational studies in terms of painting the picture on why meat is bad or th- why they're so skewed. And it's just a great book. I remember I watched their documentary back in November. They did like a week promo where you could watch the documentary I don't think they have that anymore. You can check out their website, sacredcow.com, but I would definitely check out the book. I know you guys are always asking what book I'm reading, and currently, as this podcast comes out, that's the book I'm reading. So anyways, check out Bellcampo. Check out their work. Check out all that they have to offer. You can use code Dr. Haley to save. All those links are going to be in the show notes, or you could just go to beltcampocom slash Dr. Haley, D-R-H-A-L-I-Y. D-R-H-A-L-I-E. Couldn't almost spell my name there for a second. It's fine. I think it's time to end the podcast. Anyways, anyways, thank you guys so, so much for listening. I will see you guys next week. I'm going to be doing an informed consumer series all on all things artificial sweeteners, dyes, et cetera. Definitely going to be bringing you guys a lot of info on that. And then the following week's going to be a great interview on healing your skin with one of my best friends, Ashley Nordman. So lots of great episodes for you guys coming up. Um, I'm going to be interviewing... Uh, Dr. Marisol, all on castor oil packs, because that's a huge question I get a lot about. So lots of great episodes to come. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Share it with someone who could benefit from it. And I will definitely see you guys next week. Continue being the alpha of your health.